Well, good evening, Hallows Church. Uh, my name is Andrew. I serve as a pastor here. Let me invite you to grab your Bibles and turn them open to Hebrews chapter 11. And as you're finding your way there, just by way of reminder, tonight's gathering is going to be a bit abbreviated because immediately after this gathering, we're going to host another gathering, uh, what we call a family gathering, where we come together to discuss uh, plans and possibilities for the life of our church. And we're going to uh, be exploring some exciting possibilities about the future of our presence here in the Fremont neighborhood. And so that meeting, that time together will follow roughly 10 minutes or so after our, after our gathering tonight ends. So uh, just heads up there. If you forgot about it, put it back on your radar. If, if you're able to carve out some time and stick with us even after this time, that would be fantastic. But he's, Hebrews chapter 11, as we are continuing our series titled Stories of Faith, and we're walking through this chapter, examining the various stories of men and women whose lives were characterized by faith. And today's story concerns a man that is one of my favorite characters in all of the Bible. It's a, it's a guy whose story has uh, struck a nerve with me or in me back in college whenever I was thinking about what my life was going to be about and what kind of legacy I wanted to leave behind and what I wanted to characterize my life. The Lord used the story of Enoch to just drive home some passions into my heart, to drive in some perspectives uh, really just kind of sear them into my soul. And so I'm really excited about looking at the story of Enoch tonight. But understand that when we step into the story of Enoch that picks up in verse 5, that this is a story of a guy we do not know a whole lot about. And that might be why I like him. We don't know a lot of things about this guy, but what we do know of him is astonishing. It is astonishing. You consider verse 5. We learn a couple of things kind of jump off at, at us about Enoch. We're told, one, that, that he was a guy who had the kind of faith that pleased God. But then we're also told that he was taken up, that he did not see death. That's it. He pleased God and he didn't die. That's all we find there. And so in order to really kind of get some color about this guy's story of faith, we have to look closely at Genesis chapter 5 where, where we get a little bit more detail, not a lot more, but a little bit more color to his story is found in Genesis chapter 5. So if you hold your spot in Hebrews 11, turn all the way back to Genesis chapter 5. Now, Genesis chapter 5 is an interesting chapter because it essentially catalogs the lineage of Adam from Adam to Noah, all the generations that kind of bridge those two guys together and and it's an interesting cadence because as you look at Adam and all that would come from him you you kind of find this cadence that says so and so lived had some kids then died so and so lived had some kids died so and so lived had some kids died but when you get to verse 21 the cadence changes that Enoch the seventh person the seventh generation mentioned here there's something peculiar about his life story that the author of Genesis is cueing us into and that Hebrews chapter 11 would remind us of. Check it out, verse 21. It says, when Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch, here it is, walked with God after he fathered Methuselah three and 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God and he was not. For God took him. 
Now, he's a member of this, gener- this, this lineage of generations ranging from Adam to Noah that scholars like to refer to as the antediluvian era, the, the generations that preceded the flood that we'll look at next week. And as you can see, there's some pretty eye-popping uh, numbers and years kind of attached to their lifespans. They seem to have li- lived a very long time. And, and that's all interesting, and it's worth diving into to figure out, uh, okay, how did that, how is that possible and thinking through that. But If we square up on that, we're going to miss the point of Genesis chapter 5. The point of Genesis chapter 5 isn't given so that you and I would fixate and become uh, enamored with the length of the years they lived before the flood. Genesis 5 is designed to tell us everybody dies. Everybody dies. That's the fallout of sin. You live and you die. You live and you die. But... Right in the middle of this rhythm of living and dying, there's this man named Enoch. And there was something distinct about his life that steps out. Because Enoch was a guy who didn't just live, he walked with God, right? And he wasn't a guy who died. He was a guy who was taken up, was brought up into the presence of God. He, along with one other guy in the Old Testament named Elijah, they never had a death day. In some miraculous way, they departed this world and entered into the presence of of God. And so we have in Enoch a unique illustration here of many things. And what we learn is that Enoch was a guy who walked with God. Now you think about that, those verses. Verse 20, it's not a lot there. Verse 21 through 24, that's all we read about Enoch. And this is a guy who lived for 365 years. Let's say he lived 365 years. All that time, there's only one thing recorded about him in the Bible. We are not told his career. We are not told his bank account. We are not told about his accomplishments or anything along those lines. The only thing we learn about this guy was that he walked with God. That's a legacy. And I'm wondering if you live out your days in this world as long as whatever the average lifespan may be. Let's say you're given 80 years in this world. And you do all kinds of things with your life in this world. What if you come to the end of your days... And the only thing people remember about you is that you were a man or a woman who walked with God. Would you be content with that type of legacy? Would you be content if your relationship with God eclipsed everything else about you? This is why I love Enoch. 365 years, and the only thing we really know about the way he spent his days in this world is that he walked with God. Now you come back to Hebrews chapter 11 and, you, and you're cued into a little bit about what his faith looks like. And I would remind you of who we talked about last week, Abel. Abel too was a guy last week who lived by faith. And, and what we saw in Abel's faith was a guy whose, whose relationship with God was characterized by worship. So in a sense, Abel's story of faith uh, shows us where the life of faith begins, that the life of faith begins with the worship of God, when you and I respond to God's promises of grace with lives of worship. This is why we said last week that in response to the gospel, we want to offer up our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is our spiritual worship. We want our life of faith to begin with worship. But when you step into Enoch's story in Hebrews chapter 11, you're moving from worship to walking, right? The life of faith begins when your heart explodes in response to the gospel and you see all that Jesus did for you and you are gripped by that reality and you begin to worship God in light of the gospel. But the life of faith continues when your worship moves to walking and you step into a relationship with your God 
where you are fellowshipping with him, where you are communing with him, where you are essentially walking with him. And what we find when you take Abel and and, uh, Enoch together, you get to the essence of Christianity. You want to know what Christianity is about. Christianity is about fellowship with God. It's about a relationship with the creator of the universe that is founded by grace and is enjoyed by faith. It is, a, it, is a, it is Christianity is about you and I engaging God in fellowship and friendship and communion, reminding us that the creator of the universe is not a distant, demanding God. He's a God who draws near to those he created in his image. He draws near to us to redeem us and to reconcile us to himself so that you and I might walk with him, fellowship with him, commune with him. I don't know what your understanding of Christianity is right now, but if your understanding of Christianity doesn't accentuate the relationship you have with the creator of the universe, you don't understand Christianity. The God of the Bible, the God of the universe is not a distant, demanding God. He's one desiring fellowship and friendship with men and women like you and me. Sinners who are rescued by his grace and swept up in fellowship. This is the beauty of the gospel. This is the beauty of our God. And so when you think about this dynamic of walking with God, if that's what we're going after, then there's a couple of things we want to think about that that, that image of walking, that metaphor kind of speaks to us, and it essentially signifies a couple things that we want our hearts to meditate upon tonight. One is that this idea of walking with God is it implies a, a willful, voluntary, voluntary engagement. That uh, we walk with God, we're not necessarily being dragged by Him or forced by Him into the future. We are walking by faith in voluntary union and in voluntary friendship with God. Now, when you become a Christian, you become a Christian because at some point in time, you heard the gospel of God's grace. And the gospel of God's grace melted your heart so that you now want to walk with God. So that somewhere deep down inside the heart of every Christian, there is this desire to willfully walk with God, to please God, to obey God, to say yes to the things of God and no to the things that God doesn't like. There's there's a sense in the life of every Christian who's experienced grace where their heart has been melted into a willful desire to walk with God. He doesn't drag you through this world. You walk with him willfully. So that's one thing that thinking about walking with God signifies. And the second thing we want to consider is how anytime you walk with another person, that's a progressive movement, right? You don't walk backwards in your relationship with God. You walk forward. There's progressive forward movement. So that when you are a follower of Jesus and your life is being changed by the gospel, you are being changed progressively over time as you engage your relationship with God, as you walk with him. So there's progressive movement. You move forward in your faith, forward in your obedience, forward in your understanding of the gospel of God's grace and all that he did for us in Jesus. Now, there's a, several times all throughout scriptures where, we're ta- where walking with God is talked about, is referred to. It's a popular metaphor used to describe the nature of our relationship with God and what does it mean to live by faith. But there's one guy in particular that zeroed in on our understanding of walking with God. And, and it's found in Amos chapter 3. The prophet Amos would describe walking with God this way. And it helps, again, provide some color to our understanding of walking with God. Amos chapter 3, verse 3. The prophet would ask this question rhetorically. 
He says, did two people walk together unless they have agreed to do so? Do two people walk together unless they have agreed to do so? Saying, if you're walking with another person, you are agreeing to do so. That there is soul agreement within you as you are moving forward and as you are willfully engaging in the fellowship that a walk can create. And so what I want us to think about tonight, just real practically and somewhat simply, is is what are we agreeing on when we walk with God? How do we know we're walking with God? And what, what does that constitute? How, what are we agreeing with God about when we walk with him through this world? And I think any, any of you who've ever gone on a walk with another person, maybe around Green Lake or some other place in this beautiful city, you've gone on walks with other people, there's a few things that, that you agree on. I think you will agree on the place you're going I think you will agree on the, the path you're going to walk upon. And I think you're going to agree on the pace with which you're going to walk together. So let's think about those three things as we consider walking with God together tonight. One, if we're agreeing with God, if we're walking with God, that means we are walking to the same place as God. Essentially, that means that our lives share the same goals as God. We want to go to the same place. We want to go to the same destination. We want to move towards the same goals as God. And as we've said the past couple of weeks, looking at Hebrews chapter 11, these goals, the place with which we are moving towards, the future that we're living towards and longing for, that future isn't one that we're creating for ourselves. It's not one we're dreaming up out of our own speculations and well-wishing. It's a future. It's a place. It's a goal that God has gracefully brought us into. He's one that he's forging out for us all according to his grace. Now, if you share these goals with God, if you're walking with God towards the same place, understand that you cannot walk with another person, you know this instinctively, and go to two different places. When, when you try to go to two different places, that's when things get a little crazy and a little sideways in the relationship. My first fight with Kim on our honeymoon concerned this very issue where we decided to go kayaking out in the ocean. We were honeymooning in Cancun, and so we went on a kayak, or went kayaking, and uh, went out into the ocean waters, and we were just kind of having a good time. But then we decided to, we were coming out on this sandbar that kind of, that, that stretched pretty far out offshore, and, and we wanted to go around it. We certainly didn't want to get stuck on it. And so Kim said, okay, I want to, we both decided we want to get, we, wanted, we, we needed to do something. So she started paddling in one direction. I started paddling another. And we just kind of spun in a circle until we found ourselves uh, high-centered on this soundbar, just stuck. And we had to get out and kind of push the kayak off that. And we were both kind of freaking out, worried about sharks and things like that. And uh, I, would, I don't know who was freak, more freaked out. It was probably me. But it, it was a bad moment as our frustration just kind of boiled over. We wanted to go together. We wanted to be together. But we were going in two different directions. Well, when it comes to walking with God, understand that you are moving in the direction that God would have you go. When you become a Christian, you're not saying, God, I want you to come into my life to help me achieve these goals that I've dreamt up for myself. No, you're saying, God, I'm gonna, I'm, I want to be a part of what you're about. I want to uh, embrace your goals for my life. I want to embrace your goals for your people. And so I'm going to walk with you towards those goals. Now, let's think about a couple of those goals for us. Uh, there's a couple of goals that God has that are very clear throughout Scripture, and they're, they're big ideas, but I'll just give them to you tonight. One of which is when it comes to God's goals and the ends that he, have, he has in mind for all things, one of the ways the Bible describes it is his glory. 
God's ultimate goal in all things, in all things, concerns his glory. It concerns his beauty and his wonder. It concerns his weightiness and his significance. It concerns his importance and his heaviness in the universe. In all that God does, his ultimate goal is always his glory. It is to showcase the beauty of his goodness, the beauty of his grace, the beauty of his holiness, the beauty of his purpose, the beauty of all things swept up in the glory of God. God's ultimate goal in all things concerns his glory. This is why the Westminster Catechism would say in response to the question, what is the chief end of man? What is the chief goal of man? And it would answer that question. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That you and I were created for the glory of God. We are redeemed to live towards the glory of God. And I know that doesn't rub everybody in this room very well because you and I, your, your heart is like my heart. And many days you wake up and you're not interested in the glory of God. You're interested in the glory of self. And so there's a wrestling match at times where you're wondering, well, I know God's goal in all things is his glory, but there's something in me that kind of lingers. Even though I'm walking with him, there's still this, this pull where I want to do things for my glory, for my namesake. I want to showcase my beauty, my wonder, my prestige. This is why I love Enoch. The only thing we learn about this guy is that he walked with God. He moved in the direction of the glory of God. He didn't live for his own glory to make a name for himself. He lived for the glory of God. He shared that goal. When you get to the New Testament, the writers of the New Testament focus in on this all the time. And Paul would say it about as simply as anyone could say it. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, he says, Whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, I want you to do it all for the glory of God. This is the end for which you were created. This is the end for which you eat. This is the end for which you drink. This is the end for which you work. All that you do, do it for the glory of God. Live towards that goal. And you will find yourself, as you move towards the goal of God's glory, as opposed to your own, you will find your soul more satisfied than it's ever been. Why is that? Well, it's because the glory of God is the greatest, most satisfying reality in the universe. If you live for your own glory, you're, you're following a broken system a distorted system, a dysfunctional system. If you live for your own glory, you will find yourself dissatisfied time and time and time again as you journey through this world. But when God calls us to live for his glory, understand he's calling us to live his glory because he knows his glory is the greatest reality in the universe. It's the most important wonder to live for. And so when we're walking with God, we're moving towards the same place. We're sharing the same goal. We want to live to honor God, to glorify God, to show God to be as good and as gracious and as trustworthy as he really is. So that's one goal that God has in mind. A second goal we might describe this way. Not only does God have his glory in mind, he has his kingdom in mind in all that he does. And so if you and I are going to walk with him towards the goals that he has for his people, then that means we're going to live towards his kingdom. We're going to live for his kingdom. We know this when you get into the gospel. When Jesus stepped onto the scene, the very first thing he starts talking about is the kingdom of God. He tells his first listeners, look, the time has come. The kingdom of God is at hand. And then he tells everyone, now repent and believe the gospel. Get in on the kingdom of God. And then all throughout his life and ministry, what is Jesus doing? Well, he's working, he's living, he's serving to secure the kingdom of God in the world. So everywhere he goes, he showcases the kingdom. One way to think about the kingdom of God is that the kingdom of God is what life looks like when Jesus gets his way. 
and all throughout the Gospels. That's what's going down. Jesus is getting his way in conversations with people. He's getting his way when he casts out demons. He's getting his way when he heals the sick. He's getting his way when he forgives sins. Jesus even gets his way when he goes to the cross and he dies as a sacrifice of atonement for our sins. And of course, Jesus gets his way when he would rise from the grave and the father would say, I'm pleased with my son. And he resurrects Jesus so that everyone who trusts in him may live in light of and towards and for the kingdom of God. So that those of us who are believing the gospel, we're living lives that say, Jesus, I want your way to be done in me. I want you to get your way in my life. That's essentially what a Christian says. The kingdom of God is what life looks like when Jesus gets his way. And when we're walking with God, we're moving towards that in practical and particular ways. Jesus, have your way in my life. Get your way in me. Now, when Jesus entered the world and he lived and died and he rose again, he did so to uh, secure the kingdom of God, to secure the kingdom of God in the world, the, the redemptive reign and rule of Jesus in the hearts and lives of men and women who trust in him and who are being changed by him. But you know that when Jesus, after Jesus resurrected, he didn't stick around very long. He stuck around for a few days and then he ascended and he took his seat at the right hand of the throne of the Father. But he did so after promising and assuring his disciples that one day he's gonna return, he's gonna come back. He will, he will return to this to this world. And, and when Jesus comes back, the next time he enters the world, he's not coming to secure his kingdom in this world. He's already secured his kingdom. When he comes back, he's coming to settle his kingdom, make it a living, breathing, fully manifested reality so that he would get his way in the fullest and most ultimate sense. That's what we're longing for as Christians. We want that day to come. This is why Jesus would tell his disciples, when you pray, pray this way. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let your kingdom come. Let your kingdom come. Let your kingdom come. And when Jesus returns, he's going to consummate his kingdom, settle his kingdom once and for all. And we are told some remarkable things about that day in the New Testament, that when his kingdom is consummated and Christ returns into this world, we are told a a couple of miraculous things. We're told that the dead in Christ shall rise. But we're also told that those, that generation that is alive in the world when that day comes, that generation will be swept up in a way not unlike Enoch is swept up in his story. So you consider how Enoch's story would apply to your life today. Understand that it applies in the, in the sense that Enoch serves as a living illustration of what awaits an entire generation of Christ followers, of those who are believing the gospel. When Jesus returns, they will be taken up, not experiencing death, just like Enoch. There's a few passages that speak to this, one of which, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, just to provide some color in all of this. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, listen to what Paul says about this day when Christ returns and what's gonna go down. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 51, behold, I tell you a mystery, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable 
and we, that is those who are still alive, shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. That just as Enoch was taken up, that he was translated from this world and into the presence of Christ, there's a sense in which all believers in a generation, that's going to go down for them. Another passage to give you an example, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Verse 16, it says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then, get this, we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. He's saying as you live towards that day, the return of Jesus, when you experience things like Enoch experienced them, he says, let that reality, reality, let that truth encourage you. Let it strengthen you in your life today. So there's a hope to be had by those who are walking with God towards the goal of God, the goal of his glory and the goal of his kingdom. And so if we're living towards those realities and in light of those realities, what does that do for us? But it, it calls us to, to consider how are we spending our daily moments? You know, one of the ways that the New Testament writers would talk about the return of Christ is on one hand, it talks about how it should, it's a truth that should encourage us, that should strengthen us. But there's another place and other places where the return of Christ is a truth that should purify us. It should transform us. It should make a difference in the purity of our lives on a day-to-day basis. In other words, when Jesus returns, Paul's like, don't get caught with your hand in the cookie jar, right? Live a life of integrity. If you live in light of the faith, and let your faith give shape to your daily life. Let the reality of the kingdom of God, it's coming in consummation. Let it form you. Let it affect you. Let it bring a sense of integrity to your life so that you're living in light of that which you, that which you believe. So another way of thinking about this, not only do we think about being taken up in that sense, but if we're going to be taken up, that means we're going to start living up. We're going to start living up to the realities that we've been swept into by the grace of God. Living up to the ethics of God's kingdom. Living up to the, to the beauty of God's glory. Living lives that are characterized by integrity and faith. I'll give you a couple more passages that speak to this dynamic. Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, consider what Paul writes there. He says, and so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Here's why. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. That we have been transferred from the domain of darkness and brought into the kingdom of his beloved Son. What does that mean for us but that we should live up to that reality? live up to it in the sense that we are transcending the drama of this world and we are transcending the darkness of this world we are transcending the petty problems of this world we are transcending the drama and the darkness of this world living in light of the kingdom we are now a part of and the kingdom that will one day be brought into a consummated reality 
Then you step over to Colossians chapter three and Paul says a similar thing there. He says, if then you have been raised with Christ, speaking to the Christian right now, if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Set your mind on things above. Transcend, live up. That's what the story of Enoch, I think, inspires us towards. This is what it means to, to walk into the same place as God, to have your goals being the goal of God's glory, having your goal being the goal of God's kingdom. So you consider walking to the same place. That's one dynamic of walking with God. But then another thing we want to consider is how we're walking the same path as God. In other words, not only do we share the same goals as God, we share the same concerns of God. Now, you know, anytime you've gone on a walk with another person that you can head to the same place, but go take different paths to get there. Kim and I do this a lot because usually when we're anywhere together and we're in separate cars and we're going home, we, we race to get home. And it's because our kids are prodding us, you got to beat mom, you got to beat dad. And so they're constantly saying, you got to go the quickest way. So we're mixing and maxing our route and we're trying to get to the same place, but we're taking different paths and we get out and the kids are constant. So who won? Who won? Did we beat you? Did we beat you? Whether they're talking to me or talking to mom and and we entertain that. I don't know if it's good parenting, but we may be, you know, soliciting, you know, a competitive spirit. I don't know. But, but, uh, but we take different paths to get to the same place. But when it comes to this dynamic, when it comes to walking with God, understand that if you're walking to the place of God, you are to walk on the same path as God. And as you walk with God on the same path, understand that there is a consistent path that every Christian, every follower of Jesus is called to walk upon. There is a consistent path that we all travel that corresponds with his revelation, that corresponds with all that God has revealed to us about life in this world, revealed to us about his character and his ways. This is why Psalm 119 verse 105 would talk about uh, revelation. That is the word of God or the scriptures is what's, on fo- on what's uh, in view there. Psalm 119, 105, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light to my path. There's a consistent path that every Christian is called to walk upon. It is a consistent path that corresponds with God's revelation. This means that it is a path, it is a life that is lived in consistency with the character of God. That is to say, when we are fellowshipping with God, when we are walking with God, we're gonna live lives that are consistent with his character. And where does that path lead us? That path always leads us away from sin. If you're walking with God, understand that God is always leading you away from sin. He's leading you from away from sin in your heart. He's leading you away from sin in your life. God is never leading us on a path that towards sin and destruction and self-centeredness and self-absorption. He's always leading us away from that. That's consistent for every Christian. Every Christian is to be walking away from sin, living in a way that's consistent with God's character. Consider 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1 makes this, uh, excuse me, fairly clear. 1 John 1 verses 5 and 6. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light And in him that is in God, there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, what are we doing? We're lying 
and we're not practicing the truth. In other words, you can't fellowship with God, you can't walk with God into sin. He doesn't lead us into sin, he leads us away from sin. So don't try to justify the decisions you're making that do not correspond with divine revelation. If those decisions contradict the way of life that God has laid out for you in the scriptures, you are not walking with God, you're walking with somebody else. You are deceived and you are deceiving yourself if you try to justify decisions and actions that do not square with what God has communicated to us about his character and about the conduct with which we are to live by in this world. This is what it means to walk with God, living a life that's consistent with his character. 1 Peter chapter 1, same thing. 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 15, but he, but as he referring to God who called you is holy. He who called you is pure. He who called you is unique. He is set apart. He is sacred. Just as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Live in a way that is consistent with God's character. If he's a holy God, you and I are to live holy lives, distinct lives, lives that have a different flavor to them because they correspond with the character of our God. Since it is written in verse 16 of 1 Peter 1, you shall be holy for I am holy holy. So that's part of this consistent path that we're walking on, corresponding with revelation. But then there's one other dynamic. It's not only is it consistent with God's character, it's consistent with God's concerns. It's consistent with God's concerns. And here's what I mean by that. When you're walking with God, he always leads you away from sin, but he always leads you towards the service of others. What does it mean to walk with God, to share his concerns for the good of the world, for, your, for his glory in your life and in the the lives of those that you're engaging. God always leads us away from sin, but he always leads us towards other people in service. This is why Jesus would describe himself in Mark chapter 10. I, the son of man came into the world not to be served, but to serve. And how is he serving? By giving his life as a ransom for many. And when he comes to the end of his days, he tells his disciples, I want you to go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptize, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded and baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. That's my concern. That's what I want you to live towards. Walking with God always leads towards serving others. So that's the consistent path. I think that's true for every Christian. If you are a Christian tonight, you are called to live according to God's character. Your life is to correspond with divine revelation. And you are to live a life that's consistent with God's concerns, leaving sin and moving towards others in service. But there's another aspect to this I want you to think about. As you're walking on the same path as God, there is a consistent path that every Christian follows. But at the same time, there is what we might describe as a particular path that particular Christians are called to follow. Uh, to follow. And I'm going to make up a word this, this evening. I'm going to make it up. And it's not a real word. I'll just make it up. Uh, if the consistent path corresponds with divine revelation, when we talk about walking a particular path, we're talking about living a life that corresponds with relevation. Relevation. And here's what I mean by that. Walking a particular path that is relevant to what God is doing in you and what God desires to do through you, particularly and specifically. Not every person in this room has the same gifts. Not every person in this room has the same passions. Not every person in this room has the same uh, levels of, of strengths and talents and those types of things. And so the way God wants to carry you in your service towards others is going to be unique to you. And you have a particular path that God wants you to walk in this world. 
And as you're filling your mind with revelation, all of a sudden you find yourself living according to relevation. You begin to connect the dots in what God is revealing to you and how it's to play out in your life. I'll give you an example. On one hand, we're all called to make disciples. If you were a disciple of Jesus, you have consistent command, clear for it's a path for every follower of Jesus. You are to go and make disciples. But the particular path concerns who that disciple is that you're going to make. Meaning, your heart may swell in response to hearing about the needs in Japan. And you're saying, okay, I want to be a part of what God is doing in Japan. I'm, I'm going there. I'm going to give my life to what he's doing there. Others of you may be thinking, my heart swells in response to the need of, of the homeless men and women in our city and how they are hurting. And my heart's swelling in that reaction. And so I'm going to get particularly involved with the Union Gospel Mission. You, that's the path the Lord wants you to walk in obedience to him. But then others of you may have different concerns and different passions and different burdens about life in a fallen world. And you need to hear me say, be free to follow that path. Follow the particular path that the Lord is laying out for you as you are walking by faith and seeking to leave sin behind and move towards serving others. So the consistent path says make disciples. The particular path is who am, who, who am I discipling? The particular path says there are people with names and faces in your life that God is leading you to engage and to disciple and to love and to serve. Now it's interesting, towards the end of the gospel in John chapter 21, Peter and John are having this conversation, or Peter's really having this conversation with Jesus, and Jesus is talking to him about the particular path he's going to walk. And it's not a pleasant path. He tells Peter, look, you're going to follow me to your death. And one day you're going to die a death that's going to glorify me because that's now the goal of your life. And as you live towards the kingdom, that, that's going to lead you to your death, Peter. And so he tells Peter this. And Peter's like, what am I supposed to do with that information? Why do you have to tell me that now? And church history would tell us that Peter, we believe, was martyred. He was crucified like Jesus. He died on an upside-down cross as a result of him advancing the kingdom. But when Jesus was telling him this, Peter looked over and he saw John and he said, and he pointed and said, what about that guy? What path is he going to walk? What are you going to do with him? This doesn't seem fair. It doesn't seem right. And what does Jesus say to Peter? He says, don't worry about him. You follow me. And some of you need to hear this tonight. You spend way too much time looking over your shoulder at other disciples, seeing the paths that they're walking on that God has set before them, and you're envious of them, you're jealous of them, you're growing embittered towards them because God is leading them down a path that you might want to tread, and you're not paying any attention to the path God has set before you. But if you are going to walk with God, if you're going to walk towards the same place as God, and if you're going to walk along the same path as God, stop looking over your shoulder at everyone else. You follow Jesus. What is Jesus doing in your life right now? Where is he taking you? What ministry does he want you to get involved in? What person does he want you to love? Who does he want you to engage? How does he want you to serve? You follow Jesus. That concerns the particular path that each and every disciple will walk upon as they follow, as they follow the Savior. So we're talking about walking with God. We're walking to the same place. We're walking on the same path. And then lastly, as we walk with God, we want to walk at the same pace. We want to walk at the same pace. Now, this is an interesting dynamic. If we're talking about place concerns the goals of God, the path concerns the concerns of God, we talk about keeping the same pace as God. Really what we're getting after is spiritual disciplines. 
We're getting after this dynamic where I'm going to engage God in fellowship consciously. I'm going to engage God in fellowship intentionally and purposefully. I'm going to walk the same pace as God by seeking God. And I'm going to do so believing Hebrews 11 verse 6. That anyone who comes to God must believe that he exists and what? That, he's a re- that he rewards those who seek him. He rewards those who keep pace with him, so to speak. Who pursue him, who press into him. So spiritual disciplines then become a big dynamic to this. Paul would say a very similar thing in Galatians chapter 5, verse 25, where he tells Christians, look, you need to learn to keep in step with the Spirit. Keep in step with the Holy Spirit. Commune with God through the Holy Spirit. Understand that God's presence is with you. Pay attention to him. Keep in step with him. And the temptation that we find in this life is when we get, when we become anxious about the particular paths that we're walking upon and we start worrying about our future and we start, we start making rash decisions. And in a sense, it's uh, one way to say it is that we try to get out in front of God with decisions and we try to get out in front of God with, with various choices that we're making on a day-to-day basis. And when we kind of talk that way, I know it's kind of strange to talk that way because you and I got to remember that God is beyond time. He's not subject to time and space like you and I are and so you can never really get out in front of him but there is a sense in which you can walk according to your own pace and not the pace of God it's called disobedience it's called sin that's that's what that means but if if God is that way and if, if there is a sense in which we can get out in front of him by making choices that don't correspond with his character and choices that don't correspond with his concerns and choices that aren't peculiar to the path he's calling us to walk in a given moment and we're just making choices, chances are we're making choices that aren't going to honor him, they're not going to help you, they're not going to benefit other people. I'll give you one example. Consider the young lady who may be anxious about marriage. And she's so anxious about getting married that she's not concerned with God's concerns about who she should marry. And so she makes a bad decision and she marries someone who doesn't love God. She marries someone who's interested in her, but he's not very interested in God. And all of a sudden you have two people getting married. One is wanting to walk with God that puts her life on a certain towards a certain place and on a certain path and to be walked at a certain pace, but she's linked up in the most intimate union with someone who has doesn't has no interest in that place has no interest on that pace, has no interest in that path. And all of a sudden, you're wondering, why, why, why does their relationship seem to spin in circles like this? They, they, well, they're not moving in the same direction. Now, I'm not saying God can't redeem those types of situations. He certainly can redeem all the bad choices that we make. He can, and he, and he does redeem every aspect of our lives. But if you're in this moment, and you're looking at making a rash decision... Slow down. Why put yourself in that position to have to be redeemed in that way? Make a choice today to keep pace with God, to walk by faith, to trust him with the satisfaction of your soul, to trust him with the provision of your life so that you keep pace with him, keeping in step with the Holy Spirit. This is what walking with God involves, and this implies consistency. It implies diligence. It implies perseverance. It implies dedication and what's interesting about that word dedication is you consider Enoch's name you know what Enoch's name means it means dedication he was a man who was dedicated he was a man who walked with God he went to the same place as God along the same path as God at the same pace with God and And you and I can go and do likewise you and I by God's grace can walk with God in a similar dynamic 
when you consider verse 6 and when it says that God rewards those who seek him, I love the phrase there, those who seek him, because that verb seek, it carries this idea of a continuous action. Those who don't just talk to God occasionally, but those who talk to God daily, who continuously engage and impress upon the reality of God in their lives. And that God rewards such persistence. He rewards such seeking. This is why some of your, some of your translations don't, don't just say God rewards those who seek him. If you have the NIV, you read something like this. That God rewards those who earnestly seek him. Or if you have the New King James Version, you'll read God rewards those who diligently seek him. Those translations get after that verb a little bit better than the ESVs does. That it's continuous action. It's pressing into God. It's engaging and employing in the spiritual disciplines that he's given us to guide us in this world. And you consider discipline. You consider what it means to a disciple. And you know that those two words are etymologically connected. To be a disciple means to be disciplined. Disciple, disciplined. Disciples are disciplined. We are people who seek God, who walk with God, who keep pace with God because we're talking to him, we're reading his scriptures, we're fellowshipping with the church, we're seeking the presence and the power of God in our lives. We have a remarkable privilege of being indwelled with the spirit of God and we have the ability by his grace, by his grace to walk with him through this world to walk with him so that we can share his goals, share his concerns, and engage in the disciplines that he's gifted us with so that we might do so. This is essentially what it means to walk with God, and, and this is essentially what Enoch was, rem- was remembered for. He lived a long time, he walked with God, and the Lord took him. Let me ask you, when you come to the end of your days in this world and your life is over, Somebody writes your biography, what is it they're going to say? Somebody sketches a slogan on your tombstone, what will it read? If all that biography said was this was a man or this was a woman who walked with God, and if all that is remembered of you on your tombstone is this is a man or this is a woman who walked with God, would you be content with that kind of legacy? Is your life moving in that direction? Are you walking with God through the world that is en route to the world that is to come? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you give us grace to consider our relationship with you, our fellowship with you, our friendship with you, our communion with you. And would you give us grace to consider how well you love us, how well you have sought us, how well you have pursued us in Christ. And would you give us grace to respond appropriately. God, would you take us by our hands so that we might walk with you through this world. God, would you impress upon us a passion and a desire for your goals. Would you impress upon us a passion and a desire for your concerns? Would you impress upon us a passion and a desire to utilize the spiritual disciplines that you've given us? God, that we would read the scriptures. God, that we would talk to you, that we would not take those gifts for granted. Father, would you help us to remember in the moments when we're not feeling it, to to remember that we don't live by feelings, we live by faith. And I pray that we would be disciplined and diligent to exercise faith in the days we don't feel it, in the days we don't feel like it. Would you give us grace to live by faith? And I pray, Father, that as we progress in our relationship with you and in our walk with you, I pray that that faith would give, give way to feelings that harmonize well with the realities that we believe, that you would give us flashes and glimpses of, 
of transcending indestructible joy and of deep soul satisfying pleasure with you as we commune with you and as we worship you and as we walk with you. God, would you do this work in our lives because only you can. Father, we ask and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.